This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Hit Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is a man who most excitingly has actually like worked in and around the great man himself, Michael Mann, but I think drew his love of Michael Mann and eventually Heat from movies like The Keep and also distributed Heat on home video in South Africa's home. It is Mr. Mike Barr, the Managing Director of Universal Pictures Australia. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being part of the show. It's so cool. It's, um, you know, it's amazing. I'm sure probably everybody says it when they come on. I mean, just the deep dive nature of this. It's not how we mostly interact with film. You know, it's kind of... We come in and we spend 90 minutes with it, we move on, and you're spending 170 hours. So it's like, it's, uh, yeah, it's, but it's great. It's, uh, and also just to, the revisiting aspect of it, I think, you know, because you appreciate, I mean, most of us have seen this movie a couple of times over the years, yes. you, you more than most. Um, so I love the fact that uh, it changes with time. You know, we get older, we get wiser, we get stupider. Yes. Our perspective changes, but you know, the movie is the movie, and uh, so we're actually the part that moves around it rather than anything else. But it's uh, so yeah, really looking forward to the chat. And you're 100 percent right. That is where you get. That's where I'm finding the fun is people who reminisce about when they did see it. You know, it might have been at you know, uh, spoken to folks, it's like, oh, I was 18, I was in this theater, or they remember a theater very specifically, or they were there and they did this, and they're like, oh my God, it blew my mind. And then there's someone like me, and literally the first time that I saw Heat on the big screen was only a couple of weeks ago in Sydney at an American Essentials Film Festival. I'd never seen it on the big screen. I'd been a VHS guy, DVD, Blu-ray, home cinema, never on the big screen until the 4K re-release. Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the incredible things, and one of the great powerful things with film. Um, I was in LA in April and I managed to go to the TCM Classic Film Festival. Oh, great. And I got to see movies like Grand Prix at the Cinerama Dome on the big screen for the first time. The Exorcist in IMAX. Oh. 4K IMAX. You know, with William Friedkin introducing it with an hour-long introduction. So while we stay on heat, I mean, I think it's it's just a, the appreciation of the movie, the director, everybody who made the effort to... Create a timeless classic. You know, we're 23 years on, and it's just as powerful today. And in fact, I mean, the truth is, perhaps on television or perhaps in the world of of the TV screen, we now make things like True Detective. Yes. But movies like this are very rare today. Yeah, extremely rare. You know, the CGI, the the the, the advances in technology has actually made a movie like this less of what we see on screen every day. Which is, we're all the poorer for it. Yeah. Um, but again, it kind of places heat in its historical context and, and I think just gives it more power. Yeah, I think that, that you find that in throwbacks. You know, I was even watching the Sydney Film Festival time as we're chatting and uh, I watched a throwback, a 1988 set Yakuza film in Japan. And it's like that kind of uh, 
you know, it's got a got flashes of like Training Day and Bad Lieutenant, mm. and it's like these cops and crooks, you know, getting away with sort of heinous stuff in a modern, you know, with our technology overlords and the cloud. It sort of seems impossible, but he, right of its time, is like the most advanced technology we see in the whole film is an infrared camera a telephoto lens and a flip phone, which is quite large, a quite large flip phone at that, but only one for the lead detective, not flip phones for everyone. Everyone else is on (laughs) landlines. So that perfect dating, I think you're right. It's like people ask, you know, you you hear those phrases, you know, they don't make movies like this anymore. And I just think the time helped as much as the form. Like they were keeping a very pure movie. It would be an idea in Michael Mann's head for, you know, a few decades. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, you just don't, you feel like, you feel like uh, the technology would almost trip it up. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it, it, running on that theme, it is fascinating when you observe where he went to from here, in particular if you fast forward to Black Hat. Yes. Um, both in terms of, because he shot Black Hat 100% digital. Yes. Um, I imagine that this was not shot no, using 30, any digital... 35 mil com, you know. all the way. Um, and so you almost... I guess one of the one of the intrinsic elements of the, or the core of Heat is the cat and mouse game between um, Vincent Hanna and, and Neil McCauley. Um, but you also have to place their actions in the context of an analog era. Yes. And so therein lies there's so much more of a human counterpoint between them. Once you throw technology in there that enables us to change the way we think and act um, so much, I mean, you know, you almost, I don't know, I mean, if you were literally to take the Heat screenplay today and create the exact blueprint for what you'd have to change oh my to make God. it plausible. <laughs> oh my God. Um, Just like but, but, but traffic how, cameras, everything. But I guess you, the question is you'd lose so much. Yes. Because the whole complexity, I mean, all, all the action of the movie is leveraged of these two, you know, unbelievably driven characters. Um, and again, I think if you enable them with technology, you remove so much of the humanity. Yes. And so again, I, I guess the most interesting thing is to ask <laughs> ourselves the question, okay, what does heat look like in 2038? Oh, who knows? You know, yeah. what, what does that version look like? I because think... And can, can, can a movie even purport to tell that story in a world of surveillance? And I know I'm going way down a rabbit hole yeah. now, but it, it, it's fascinating. So I think the time capsule element of this, um, but it's, it's not just that we can look back at Heat and say to ourselves, what a quaint, odd little world it was. No. It's more just Jesus. What a what a freaking this is the robust, yeah. um, manly world it was. I mean, this is a you know, there's a, there's a great um, cross section of characters in this movie, but ultimately it's these two, you know, alpha <laughs> males of their own little species going mano a mano. Yeah, and I, the the big one, the big one for me is just even when we talk about the the analog versus the digital is um, the only movie that I can think of that actively tried to pull back um a, a movie's like it, that happened with the born supremacy you know going off grid but uh-huh. it's almost like you're going out of the first world into the third world to be off grid no computers yeah. cash yeah. things yeah. um and there was a very lovely note although you know it's a movie that's infected by technology all over the place um in skyfall where james bond goes back to a radio and a pistol and they're like 
this is what you get. So there's, I think there's some ways where people are going, oh, well, this overinflation of technology, how do we overcome it? You just go to places that don't have signal anymore, where there's mm. no Google Maps, where there's no, <laughs> where there's no infrastructure, where there's no filming. So, um, but yeah, inescapable in a modern LA. Mm. And it's, and it's, and you said the word analog. Talk about these are two analog guys. They're the guys that didn't get upgraded to digital. This is them at their very, very best in their career, I think. Totally. So the minute that we're talking about, I want to thank Mike again. It's the 59th minute. So if you're watching the original version uh, of Heat, the Warner Brothers DVD release, um, much the same as the video release that Mike would have uh, worked on originally when it came out, um, is... You are queuing up exactly 58 minutes zero zero um, up to 59 minutes zero zero. So we're right there in that pocket. Um, and the scene uh, we've seen previously, who we've just talked to with Dan Ziffer, we've seen um, Wayne Grow, so the amazing Kevin Gage, uh, happily, if you like, just or very casually uh, react to just murdering a prostitute in a room and is now sitting in here signing himself up for his next job, which we know because we've seen the movie a million times, um, but he's just very casually getting signed up to work with Van Sant, sitting there, a little bit of a weird, disturbing post-coital cigarette. Um, is where we join him, <laughs> if you like. So Mike and I are going to watch that minute. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. I knew this guy in uh, grade school. His name Raul, uh, whatever. Anyway, the guy, he could take his fingers, right, and fold them over one over the other, and then he'd turn his eyelids inside out and front flip, lay hands off back. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. It feels so wonderful about you in that bestial sort of way. <laughs> so, what starts with the very perverse Wango having his postcordal cigarette in this dank bar and the neon cocktail sign over him, which is very gross. Uh, we go to the cops and their wives finally having a bit of downtime. So, seeing Neil McCauley's crew have their downtime at the restaurant at the little crook convention. And now Vincent and these detectives and their wives are, are, are having a, a bit of a too early celebration, possibly, um, that they've kind of caught on to uh, uh, Neil and his crew. Um, we see the great Ted Levine vamping. So if you guys have listened to the director's commentary, you might know that Ted Levine made up this story about this kid who could his fingers, Raul, who could do his fingers and his eyes. And um, we're in the middle of a conversation. We get a beautiful little note to end on, which is... Um, Diane Venora's, you know, they're sharing quite intimate, almost inaudible conversation over the music and Diane Venora and Al Pacino as, uh, as Vincent and Justine are sort of dancing and then he holds her in for a moment after she says something lovely to him, he sort of jokingly says, woman, and she just, she's got this amazing, rich laugh that you guys would have just heard um, and then it is interrupted by his beeper um, to mm. be notified of what we've just seen in the preceding minutes. Do, do we know if that 
line is in the script or was it improvised woman? Oh, uh, that one I don't know. Because her, her reaction is just, it's, I mean, if that's... If, if, if that's acting, If that's laughing, acting, that is sensational, I, yeah. I, that's what I thought. I've yeah. watched it in preparation for the minute and watching it again now. I'm like, that is such a rich and yeah. organic laugh. Like, it doesn't feel at all yeah. like they staged that. Yeah. But that no, just, that's, they, they, look, they look good together in this whole movie. They have, I think they must have... Must have had a ball working together. Obviously, they worked together in the Insider as well. Yeah. But they must they must have had a ball doing this. God, this is. I'm sorry to bring you in. You, I've got you right at the tail end of literally the darkest minute in the whole movie. So I'm sorry to bring you oh, in the, on that. The, the murder. The murder scene. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring you in in that scene. But that, I, I suppose, in some ways, I mean, that's when you transition from. And I look. I, I think he showed a lot of restraint yes. in not actually depicting more. Um, we know at this point these guys are bad guys. We know Wayne grows about as psychotic <laughs> as, as any of them. Um, so I, I like the fact that he brings um, a little bit of balance back. You know, yeah. it gives the audience a bit of relief and, and a moment to step away. And almost, I guess, in watching, in watching them chatter aimlessly or, or, or about nothing around the table yeah. I wonder whether part of his intention with that as well is not only to counterpoint the earlier scene with Macaulay's crew but also to give the audience time to really kind of think about what Wayne Grow's just done. Yes. Because, I mean, it's the power of imagination, isn't it? You know, it, you're sitting there, and I suppose, you know, we're so inured <laughs> to slasher movies or to the hostile movies yeah. by now that there's nothing you can show us that, that would shock us. Maybe in 1995, but you know, and you watch Ted Levine. I was saying, I mean, obviously, you know, the, our, our crazy villain from Silence of the Lambs. Um, isn't he just one like Ted? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he just a wonderful character actor that just always is doing great work? Like, he's still going strong, still going strong. Still and he's in a few strong. Michael Mann movies. He's in Ali. Yeah. I think you said yeah. you met, uh, you know, the, the wonderful things that Mike's met the man and met him in Ali in South Africa, which is amazing. And he's in that. He's that creepy. Uh, he's the creepy FBI element in Ali. Ted yes. Levine. He just pops yeah. up. Ama- uh, incredible. And 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 in this, yeah. what's so funny? You see uh, Kevin Gage who plays Wayne Grow. Ted Levine and Michael Mann had known each other and actually he was tapped on the shoulder to do Wayne Grow's role before Kevin Gage. Oh, wow. Okay. And because we just talked about, he was so fresh out of Silence of the Lambs, he was like, please don't. <laughs> uh, the way that I imagine is like, please don't make me play another I mean, psychopath. Type, no, typecast type, for life. <laughs> yeah, I yeah no, you would If be. I go yeah. back to back with Wayne Girl and, and, and this, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm out. So he withdrew and went into the crew and became like, you know, uh, Michael T. Williamson and, um, and Ted Levine are like the, you know, the one and two, the, the real strong personalities in that second crew. So yeah. really cool to see him not having to do that nastiness. But I, I agree, there's so much power. And also the fact that it just goes to Wayne Grow as we see in the flow of this scene, just getting his next job mm. and how, how nonchalant, it's like nonchalant. It's like going to get a coffee. Mm. You know, we're, we'll, we'll have this conversation. Let's go have a chat. Like mm. it's as passive as anything. He, he doesn't feel like anything's unusual has happened. And you kind of are reeling in some ways because you're like, did I just imagine that he just murdered that girl and is happily now just having a beer? Like there's no problem. I think that's so, so powerful. But I think it also goes to what, what seems to be, you know, many of Michael Mann's films, and obviously a huge theme in Heat, which is the, I guess, you know, that line that we all walk down as human beings, and the fork in the road where we go, good or rogue. <laughs> yes. Um, 
And, you know, I guess the morality, the morality of it all, which is, you know, not everybody views the same thing through the same prism of morality. Yes. And so you see the professionalism, if you like, of Macaulay and some of his crew. And then you see, you know, and yet they had the supposed wisdom to hire uh, yes. Wengro into their crew. Uh, yes. You know, like what part of the psycho didn't you figure out in the in the first interview? Or, you know, what, what does that interview look like? You know, first time run. I mean, it, you know, you often see, uh, especially as a the, man who's conducted many job interviews, you're like, no, thank you. Yeah, you, you, you didn't see that look in his eye. But you know, it's funny when you when you when you think about. I mean, there's like there's been so many movies about a group of guys who were in Vietnam came yeah. back became criminals became a a gang using that bonding and that brotherhood that they discovered in Vietnam and so but you got Wango who's obviously just such a complete psychopath um i like the fact that i almost think it's important that he's 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 he goes from having committed this this hideous i mean the fact that he's Got this Nazi tattoo on his chest. Yes. And then, uh, you know... And a I, bunch of prison tats. He's covered in them. Yeah. yeah. But but for me, it was like, it was almost curious as to why did he choose an African-American hooker, for example. Yes. You know, because supposedly if you're a Nazi, you know, African-Americans <laughs> aren't your favorite people. I mean, there's all these, there's all the subtext going on that, you know, and again, I mean, this is when you, when you're doing it to the degree that you are, Blake, this is the very subtext that gets debated. I don't know whether there was a deliberate thinking around that. Um, But it's just, I guess, again, the, the, the way that Michael Mann normalizes an otherwise abnormal character. Yeah. Literally sitting in a bar, having a smoke, having a drink. Applying for a job. Applying for a job. Under a After that. neon cocktail sign. It's really interesting because you talked about the morality of the characters and it's also, that's that's one big moment where when you watch the guys at the beginning of the movie, despite the fact that it's extreme, like high order violence, immediately, bang, we see things happen. Um, when they kill the original armored car officers, everything that happens from that moment even Vincent diagnoses that something has gone wrong. Like, the way that they were executed. Vincent even max, maps out what they must have been thinking. So yeah. even though we see it in the moment and we very much see Neil like, you know, uh, um, uh, Michael Chiritos or Tom Sizemore, he looks at Neil like, did I, yeah. do I need to shoot these guys? Yeah. And, and so even though they've done some pretty heinous stuff and we know that they're sort of wielding, you know, they'll deal out death as they need to as part of the job, mm-hmm. Michael Mann kind of keeps it under, if he, he keeps it in that corridor of professionalism so that there's something that you can, if, even if you can't sympathise with it or empathise with it, at least you would understand oh, it. That is exactly right. And, and totally now, right, yeah. And now with Langro, what we've just seen, and again, he just brings it back to that normalised behaviour moment, but when, when Langro does this, you know that, this guy's off the spectrum. Correct. It's almost just like a little bit of a, I'm going to show you the spectrum of crime and spectrum of professionals and, spectrum, and he, he is something different. Yeah. And even from the second he disappears, like into the night, and yeah. Neil is just like shocked that it could even have happened. Yeah. From that moment, even then, you're like, there's something not, there's something that makes this guy not like any other character in this movie. Yeah. And you can imagine how in a, no, you, 
you, you don't go down to the local underworld club <laughs> to hire your characters, you know. And so you can imagine how, um, I mean, you know, the prequel, yeah. which must surely, you know, focus on the backstory of each of these guys <laughs> and how do they get to that time and place as part of a crew. But, you know, cinema history is littered with the one guy in a gang who fucks up. Yes. And who causes the downfall oh, of everybody else. Absolutely. You know, and and it, it's almost, again, you know, using the term morality tale, um, it's interesting how when you go back to the, you know, during the code era in the 40s and 50s and the height yep. of the Warner Brothers gangster movies, and, you know, there was a certain kind of um, a trope that had to be applied in any crime movie. Yeah. The bad guy could never get away with it. No. There had to be, you know, the, the, the damsel had to have some vindication. You know, they, they're just, they, there was a certain almost morality clause that existed when you wrote a screenplay or shot a movie. Um, and he had to have a snitch. He had to be betrayed by someone in his crew because that, it made that they they were morally weak. Yeah, and and, was, and, yeah. and they would undercut him, yeah. and that betrayal would then mean. So it's interesting how, as uh, as cinema evolved in the seventies out of the civil rights movement, the Vietnam, the anti-Vietnam War protests, Watergate. and in particularly Nixon and Watergate. Tricky Dicky kind of undermining... <laughs> That's under- the first time I've said Tricky Dicky on this podcast, and I love it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, it took... It, 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 it said to every single person in America and arguably many people around the world that the rules no longer applied. Yes. And a new set of rules were going to be established, but by people who chose to make those rules themselves. So fast forward 20 years on to the events of heat. And I think what you have is, you know, especially, um, uh, you know, on the back of Reaganism and the, you know, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the epitome of capitalism, if you will, you know, yes. each for themselves. Um you know, you've got this gang operating as a unit. And then, of course, you know, again, as we've been discussing, Wayne Grow, the, the loose cannon within that. Um, but I love how it then counterpoints to that scene in the restaurant. Um, because clearly, um, these guys aren't living in Malibu. No. You know, they, no. they aren't going to they aren't going to have the spoils of their. No. Of their, of their, um, their, or the loot to go and uh, their wives aren't wearing furs. That's it, such a great, like a, a, a the, interesting contrast. The furs and the earrings, yeah, yeah, you know, um, and yet, you know, I, I suppose that again goes down the line between. I mean, I love that that ultimately you have the two women in their lives who are seeking what. I guess most people really want, which is a human connection. Yes. Um, and that all the material things that yeah. most, well, not so much in the case of Pacino, but I'm sure there's a line in the, somewhere in there where she says, um, I don't care. I don't, you, you know. I, 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 it's, it's literally in this, uh, in, in, um, a, in the like upcoming minute. Okay. Well, no spoiler uh, alert. You know, it's like, I, She's I, like, I love you, bored, fat. Yeah, exactly. Money, no money. You know, I just, yeah. I want you. And, and, but that's the part he can only give her a tiny little piece of, you know, because there's more, you know, he, he needs the, the world of, 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 uh, of, um, of his, uh, of his um, professional life to satisfy the, you know, the, the, those inner workings of his. It's, um, and and right now I love that everyone's on, and it's much the same with Neil's crew. I love that there's a bit of a like a breath, like a in this scene. There's like you know we're we're now 
59th minute, we're right up to the, you know, an hour into this film. And right now we've seen both crews and seen the dichotomy in both crews. And it's like the satisfaction for Neil's crew, you know, especially with Elaine, Michael's wife is like, did you know about this? He's like, yeah, but just don't ask him where he got it. You know, like that, there's that sort of very opulent, you know, fake family. And then you've got this actually more organic sort of truthful bunch of folk who are just letting their hair down because they must pull their hair out trying to chase these people and getting, you know, and it's probably the one time I actually have an upcoming episode that I've recorded with a, with a friend of, uh, with a friend of mine who I won't tell you his name. He's just straight. He's Australian federal police detective. And he talks about, you know, occasionally when the boys get together or, or you know, or the cops, cause they talk shop, there's not as much of that with the wives. So for me now, when I look at that scene, I go, God, this must be a rarity. This was booked in three months ago that they all got to go out. They all hired babysitters. They all got to let their hair down. And Vincent just happens to suckily be on call. So right now we get to see them finally letting their hair down. They're in the middle of this case, but at least they get to have a little bit of reprieve. And then he's still on the clock. So he's out. He gets that pager, you know, talking about technology before he gets that page. And he's back out in the thick of it. And But it's almost like... Um... Uh, uh, I guess it's like a drug. I mean, you know, it's like yeah. you're about to inject yourself and you know you shouldn't be doing it and there's part of you that's fighting against it and there's part of you that absolutely just has to have it. Yes. And and I think that's the complexity of it. I mean, that's what he... The, the, these these incredible layers that his characters have and that's, I mean, that's one of Michael Mann's greatest strengths. I mean, I think one of the things that I like why his films are as strong as they are is he's a writer-director. Yes. He's not, you know, he's not interpreting somebody's, somebody else's words. He's got a holistic vision for what he wants to show. Um, and he's able to create characters who the audience can more closely identify with. I mean, very few people are going to go out and live Neil McCauley's life. No. <laughs> but unless you show him grappling with the kind of minutiae of a daily life that most other people have to deal with, you, it's not about empathizing, but it's about relating. Yes. So to your point earlier, even when they are going about their professional, what they consider to be their professional work, we relate as an audience. That's a masterstroke. Yes. Because you, know, you can lose the audience so quickly if what you're seeing on screen uh, are you know, uh, characterizations to which you just have no, yeah, you don't... no association, no empathy, no, no relationship. Yeah, it's... And... Uh, and with the criminals particularly, you're like, there's some weird thing that happens and you would know it from your work, but it's like there's something really crazy engaging about anyone who's good at anything. Like really good. Sure. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. And we're, we're sitting in a room at the offices uh, in Sydney at Universal and there's a line on the roll, uh, line on the roll from Back to the Future. And I just even thought of Doc, Doc Brown right there. I'm like, he's crazy good. He's crazy, but he's crazy good at what he does. There's something yeah. so... Uh, we just like seeing people be very good at their jobs, whatever those jobs are. And I think there's some magic that Michael Mann figures out with those professionals. And I think that's why, you know, um, you know those great sort of thrilling, uh, you know, whether it be gangster or political masterstrokes where you see, you know, even it happens in Game of Thrones where you see the, the amazing Peter Dinklage as like Tyrion Lannister, like he's so good at the manipulations playing that the you're game. playing the game that you just watch in awe of how they navigate. Yeah. And those are more complex waters than this. The criminal lines are a little bit harder drawn. But I think it's just it just goes to that fact that, you, and also now for these guys, we've seen how much they've toiled 
and we actually give them permission, even though it might not, they haven't caught the guys yet. We're mm. giving them permission in this moment to have like a drink because they've probably haven't slept in days or a week and it didn't look like they were ever going to get catch these guys because they we keep hearing about how good they are they're good they're good they're good you can't track the sale Vincent you're going to get the phone book with slick um, so it's this kind of nice bit and you know, I think what's so important I mean this this goes to the richness of why heat and films like it are so much stronger than many others of their type I mean you know most movies have to operate in a 90 minute to two hour window window yeah um and so filmmakers are never allowed to have the time to go and explore the complexities of their characters you kind of everything's super i mean it's quite interesting i don't know if you've seen a film called den of thieves i haven't seen it yet which okay. is a, it's an it's a, 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 a we're talking just before a modernization of a heat it ethos. is Totally heat done in 2017. <laughs> um, and for anyone listening, it's way better than you'd ever expect it to be. <laughs> okay. That's... Way better. And if you're a fan of heat... I'm going to watch it. Um, you've got to see it because not only have they done an amazing job, but if you... Again, I'm, I'm making a huge presumption here. I mean, there's you cannot tell me that the guys who made this didn't have heat. But in they their loved mind. it. They, they probably watched um, heat all the time. I've heard. But it a it's few it's, it's 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 a it's an incredible homage to it. And the movie, you know, it's 140 minutes or thereabouts. So yes. it, it's it's again in the prism of a 2018 release. That's a long movie, um, and they do get a chance to get under the hood of these guys, but with far less characters. What Michael Mann's done so brilliantly here is he's created... I think you realize that the crew is so important. That's why this this minute is is such a... Um, it's almost like the... It's like the glue that holds the rest of the movie together because if these... It, it's, it, you, you can't show either... Uh, Vincent Hanna or Macaulay being relentless all the time. No, it's, it, it's, it, it's, it, again in order to buy that they can live what is otherwise a permanently switched on life. As you see, you know, the minute the beeper goes, I'm down to the crime scene. That's the nature of what I do. Therefore, if you don't show them blowing off steam, if you don't show them having a life outside of that, they would never be able to function in society. You know, you've just got to have nuance in your life. You can't be singly no. one thing and that one thing only. It's really funny that you say that, Mike, because when seeing Heat for the first time in a cinema with a big with a big audience, like I'd seen it with a bunch of friends before, and you know, often people who are familiar with the movie, so you know, you, you're you're fine. There's no um, shushing your friends when you all of you quote the lines together and things like that. But seeing it in a theater, that's what I think is so brilliant about. So what's brilliant about Neil's performance? Uh, so so Daniel performance as Neil is you know this sustained sort of agony and then he kind of relaxes and there's that very great romance with Amy Brenneman's Edie Mm. but with Pacino who's always one step behind or was one step behind for so much of the movie um, those moments that sometimes people in isolation turn into gifts and turn into you know to mocking him going oh it's you know he's so loud it's no, they're just flashes of sardonic humour mm. or gallows humour from a guy who's under a lot of stress. And that's the only way that he can kind of get it out. Like, And in the theatre, 
with a group of people, it played as like these big things of relief, like yeah. just like this moment, like oh, thank God! Like when he when he when um, Wes Judy's Casal says, uh, you know, too late, Vincent, we can't track it. Oh, that's wonderful! Bang, click the phone, hangs up. You know, those things have got such deft touches that you're like, oh, this is. I a relief. can tell you, uh, you know, I'm I'm a massive proponent for the in cinema experience, not just because you can leave behind your iPhone and all the oh. other intrusions, but and it's such a cliche, and we've heard it a billion times, listening or watching a movie with an audience, um, you know, it, it is a different experience. It's it different enriches animal. it so much. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're in some kind of relationship with the film. You're giving yourself to the film, and you really do pick up. I mean, audio is such a big part of what Michael Mann does. Um, and there's such, a, such an interesting score, because you've got the score, but you've also got all the source music that he's punctuated yeah. all the way through the movie. Um, and when you listen to that, it enhances the mood so much more. You'd have to have a pretty hefty home theatre system to really to do, justice to, to do justice to the movie. And it's not something you watch late at night. Like, I, I don't know about you, Mark, I've got one little one and another little one on the way. And Heat is already a movie that I'm watching with... with uh, I have to watch it on my laptop if I want to have my noise-cancelling headphones in to get something because I know that as soon as those gunshots go off, my, yeah, my yeah. 18-month-year-old daughter's going to wake up. So it's like when you're in the theatre and you can be surrounded by and immersed by... Yeah. Especially the thing that struck me was the planes at the climax of the film coming in through the speakers and like you can feel them coming from like the back of your neck and the hair stand up and it runs through your whole body well, ironically and I'm and just if to go up topic for one second um, I've got three versions of Saving Private Ryan at home <laughs> yeah. I've only seen the film once it may like yeah. probably for anyone who's seen it knows what an impact it makes and last weekend the Cremorne Orpheum had the 20th anniversary right. and I went along to that with right. my wife and it was amazing, and I'm so glad. It's not a movie I want to watch every other day. No. Because it's so intense, it asks a lot of you. But diving back into it, rather than sitting... And I know that if I was watching it at home, I would be... I just... I, I can't help myself. I'm, yeah. I'm going and tinkering around with other things. It's yes. just because there's not enough time in the day to do all the shit you've got to do. Yes. But sitting there and giving yourself to the film. and So for anyone you know who gets a chance to see Heat on the big screen, will find it's you know probably two to three times more impactful uh, than just trying to sit at home and watch it. Well, I know you're busy. And on that note, folks, I just want to thank Mike Bard for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It uh, is such a pleasure. For being a part of One Heat Minute. Guys, thank you so much for listening. if you want to find out anything about the show, it's oneheatminute.com. Um, you can subscribe there to the different uh, podcasts that you need to find out. Um, again, uh, if you guys are listening to this, um, thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review. We love it. I've been Blake Howard. Thanks to Garth Franklin for our website design, Paul Davies for our music, and we'll catch you on the next episode of One Heat Minute.